A Lockheed L-1011 goes down in the Florida Everglades while trying to land in Miami. Why did this brand new aircraft make a crash landing? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And today we're covering Eastern Airlines Flight 401. On December 29th, 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401, a four-month-old Lockheed L-1011, took off from JFK, bound for Miami International Airport, and it took off at 9.20 p.m. Eastern Time. There were 163 passengers and 13 crew on board. The captain was Robert, or Bob, Loft. He was a 55-year-old, and his medical exam showed that he needed reading glasses, about a month before the flight. He had 29,700 total hours, of which 280 hours were in the L-1011. For a captain, that's pretty low. But that's also because the L-1011 was very new at the line at the time, and so, like, Eastern Airlines, like, this was a four-month-old L-1011 to them. This was brand new. It was a new airplane. Uh, the first officer, Albert Stockstill, was 39 years old and did not need glasses. And the flight engineer... Donald Repo is 51 years old, and he had reading glasses. Flight was uneventful all the way up until they dropped the gear for landing in Miami on approach in the middle of the night. At that time, the nose landing gear green light did not come on, so when you drop the landing gear, there's either three red or three green indication. When the gear goes up, they all switch to three red, and then the lights go out. That tells you the gear went up and locked. When they drop you get three green indication, and that means that the gear is down and locked. And they didn't get any on the nose gear. The light didn't come on. At 11.34 p.m., EA-401 called air traffic control for a go-around due to the no light on the nose gear, and he was. they were told to ascend to flight level 2,000, so, or 2,000 feet. And EA-401 entered appropriate heading per the ATC. At 11.36 captain told the first officer to engage the autopilot. First officer acknowledged. First officer successfully removed the nose gear light lens assembly, thinking that maybe it was burnt out or put in incorrectly. But he jammed it when he tried to replace it because he put it in upside down. At 11.37, captain instructed the flight engineer to enter the forward electronics bay below the flight deck to visually check the alignment of the nose gear indices. Proper nose gear extension is indicated by the physical alignment of two rod on the landing gear linkage. You can see these in the forward electronics bay with the nose wheel light on. So, in other words, literally the flight engineer went below deck and physically looked. They have a little indication with two rods that shoot up when the landing gear is down and locked. But he couldn't see it very well. At 11.38, captain told the flight engineer to check nose gear indices again asked ATC to go out more west to allow more time to get the light, and it was granted. At 11.38 to 20... So, real okay. quick, sorry. Nope. Don't want to interrupt fine. you already. That's fine. Sorry. Did they need it to land? Is that why he needed the light? Yes. So, when you're approaching an airport, if your landing gear is not down and locked, you have no indication, then you're probably... You, you your don't landing know. gear might not be down. Oh, so it was the landing gear light? Yes, it was the landing gear light. Okay. If, For some reason, my head went to the lights that 
are the landing lights outside of the oh, aircraft. No. no, it's the indicator on the cockpit panel saying that your landing gear is down. Yeah. Oh, okay. That they call it on. three green on tricycle gear um, airplanes. So you get three green means you get the left gear, the front, the main nose, and the right. And you get the three green that tells you that all three are down and locked. If you don't get three green, then yeah, you want to abort your approach because you might be landing an airplane with the landing gear up. In which case, you need to make a lot more preparations. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. So they were able to do that from inside the aircraft? They were able to... They were trying to see if the landing gear was down. So they sent the first... The flight engineer or the second officer below deck to try to check if the landing gear was down using an alternate method. Oh, okay. Yeah, so there's a hatch in the cockpit to go down into the Ford Electronics Bay. And there's like a little tiny window where you can see... Did he just not see it? or So in order to see it, he needed to have the wheel well light on. And this was a huge fiasco if you want to. Okay, continue. Sorry. It's okay. Yeah, so they needed to have the wheel well light on and he couldn't see. He came back up. They recycled the landing gear. They sent him back below deck and he still couldn't see if the gear was down using the rod system. At that point, they kept messing with the light instead of using... You mean the light on the panel? The light on the panel. They kept messing with the light on the panel to see if it was just a bad light, bad indication. Are we looking at the panel right now? Is that what that is? Yeah, yes. so we'll have this photo on our website. Um, it's a very old-looking cockpit, but you can see that there's a row of three green lights and one of them's not lit, and it's the one in the center. Oh, does that mean that the center... Yeah. Le- they didn't know if the center gear was down? Is the that nose. what that is? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's where things start getting weird, and we'll get into more detail in a bit, but at 11.40, a half-second C chord sounded, and it was heard on the CVR, the cockpit voice recorder. By C chord, we mean a C major chord. An actual chord? Yeah. Yeah, That's kind of cool. Yeah. (laughs) Not gonna lie. (laughs) Yeah. It was heard on the CVR, but uh, no indication was found that the flight crew in the cockpit heard it. Does it have relevance? It indicates that there was a deviation of 250 feet from the selected altitude on the autopilot. Was the flight engineer still in the bay? The flight engineer was still in the bay at the time. And fun fact, this little C chord comes from his panel. So he would have been the one to hear it. But he wasn't sitting there. Yep, he should have been the one to hear it, but he wasn't sitting there, so he didn't. There was no pitch change to correct for the loss of altitude. That was on the flight data recorder. They didn't see any change to correct for this 250-foot drop that happened all of a sudden. At 11.41, the flight engineer says from the electronics bay that it's too dark to see anything. The crew of the Eastern Airlines maintenance specialist, who was in the forward observer seat, discussed the nose wheel well light. And then the specialist joined the flight engineer in the electronics bay. ATC called asking how things were going because he noticed their altitude was at 900 feet, though he wasn't worried as momentary deviation and altitude information on the radar display are not uncommon at the time and required an additional scan to verify. Eastern Airlines 401 responded wanting to turn around and try again, and ATC granted that. So, knowing what I've known, what you guys have told me about this... Did they ever get the terrain alarm that they were too close to the ground? This is before terrain alarms. This is before terrain alert systems. Is it? Yes. Okay. So the only indication they had was the C chord that came from the flight engineer's panel. 
Oh, okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> that makes more sense. I was like, but if they were getting that close to the ground, why wasn't there a terrain alarm? But if there weren't any terrain alarms yet, I guess that makes this sense. This is in 1972. It's pretty early in aviation. But this airplane was the most advanced thing at the time, especially for wide bodies. Well, and I remember... Sorry, this is a side tangent. I remember it was a Colorado crash that caused all planes to have terrain alarms. The one that was in Durango. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember how long ago that was, so I didn't have any context. It was also quite some time ago. I don't remember what year, but yeah, it was, it was quite some time ago. At 11.42, the first officer said, We did something to the altitude. Captain is heard saying, What? First officer says, we're still at 2,000, right? Captain says, hey, what's happening here? Ten seconds later, an impact is heard over the CVR. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay, wait. This wait. all happens so fast. I get it. I, I just, wait. Why is, why, why is the flight engineer still in the bay if he can't see anything? It was this whole thing. It was it was a lot of confusion over an indication if the gear was down or not. They weren't sure, so they wanted to make sure that their gear was dropped for landing. And because the TriStar was eons ahead of its time, it had a very advanced autopilot system. It was the very first plane that could land completely on its own, on autopilot. And so the flight crew put all their faith into the autopilot while they tried to fix this issue. No. <laughs> I can already tell that's like, no. So it was an issue with the autopilot then? It was. So to put this in perspective on how quickly things happen, they actually, the, the report gives a nice little uh, chart on the timing of everything here. Their descent to 9,700 feet was from 27 minutes to 20 and a half minutes before the incident. Nothing really happens all the way up until about 420 seconds prior to the incident. So 420 isn't actually that much. It's just a that's how they wrote it in the seven report. Minutes. Yeah, it's 7 minutes before the incident. So they're trying to figure out this whole light fiasco doing circles out over the dark Everglades starting about 7 minutes before. That's when they're leveled out at 2000 feet. At 140 seconds to the 20 second mark is where the pitch over and descent happened unnoticed and 20 seconds to 0 seconds the left turn toward 180 degrees and the impact occurred. So everything happened pretty quick. I mean, it happened in seven minutes, but then the the final descent didn't happen until basically the last two minutes or so worth of time before the impact, and they didn't notice until the very last second. After all this was said and done, there were 99 official fatalities. Uh, two more died a week later from injuries, and that made a total of 75 survivors all said and done. Injuries included fractures and burns, uh, 17 did not require hospita hospitalization. Uh, of the survivors, it was 67 passengers and 8 crew, 8 flight attendants. None of the flight crew survived. I think when I was watching the episode, it said that the captain was alive for a little bit before passing away. They found him so and they, he passed away on site. Yep, they found him. He passed away on site. They managed to ask him a couple questions, I think, but they didn't get much out of him before he passed away. Well, yeah, you, not with someone who's just gone through something like that. They probably can't remember all that much. Right. And an autopsy of the captain found a brain tumor that was pressing on the right occipital lobe of the brain, which is about a cuey 
sized tumor. Yeah. Yeah, about And two he had just had a medical exam and they didn't find it. Nope. Well, if it's in his brain, the only way they could have found it would have been if he had an MRI. Right. With some people's brain tumors, though, I mean, it's found because there starts being indications in their behaviors and such. But, but for him, actually, they think that it grew over such a long period of time that it... It, it wasn't noticeable. It wasn't noticeable. The brain actually adapted for the tumor. And I'll get more into that. Yeah. And so it, it didn't... It was unnoticed by everybody. Family, him... The wreckage ended up in soft mud, about 6 to 12 inches of water surrounding it, 8 feet above sea level. The left outer wing impacted first, followed by the number one engine, left main landing gear. The aircraft disintegrated. Fuselage ended up in four main sections and many small pieces. And the entire left wing and stabilizer demolished. Primary flight control positions, according to the FDR, show the pilots were trying to pull up at the time of the crash. Spoilers were retracted and were physically found to be that way too. But the flaps were both set to and physically at 18 degrees extension, which means that they were in a good condition for slow flight, but in a holding flight, not for landing. Mm-hmm. The leading edge slats were found fully extended, as was also recorded on the FDR. Landing gear lever in the geared down position... The right main landing gear was down and locked, but the left main landing gear and the nose landing gear were extensively damaged. It's hard to tell. The nose gear down and locked visual indicator sight and the nose wheel well service light were both in place and working. This is what they couldn't see when they were down there. The nose gear warning light lens assembly was jammed in 90 degrees clockwise and was sticking out a quarter of an inch. Both bulbs in it were burned out. So the bulb that never came on and was the source of this whole fiasco was just burned out. The one for the panel? Yes, the one on the panel was burned out. And actually, this picture that we have up shows that. (laughs) It shows the bulb burned out. It's the one in the middle of the three. Actually, the picture that that we're looking at is under what they call a Christmas tree test, where they lit all the lights on the board... Just to prove that it's burned out. Wait, so do they not check this in maintenance? Was it not... So they can, but the bulb likely burned out, I mean, after any maintenance checks. The Christmas tree check wasn't necessarily required at the time, but also, even if they did check it, it may have been on before they left the ground, because the the gear was down, so that was the only time it indicated. Previously, on, on the previous flight, they obviously got a good indication. Yeah, well, what about the flight before this one, though? That yeah. flight crew, they didn't say anything about it, it being It might not burned have been out? burned out. It probably wasn't burned out at the time, because that flight would have had to gone around, and they would have had to have it replaced before the airplane could have flown again. And could the pilots have had any indication that this light would have been burned out before they put the gear down? No. No. Only okay. when they tried to have the light lit right the okay. only other thing they could have done is the christmas tree test but honestly why would they if they thought everything was functional and then my next question is is there a way for them to turn on the wheel well light then to see the actual landing gear or is that just not a thing it was on or i think they wanted it to be on and there was this whole conversation about it and it was part of the distraction is is the wheel well light on i can't see anything right 
but they were also messing with the light, just trying to get the little light on the panel flipped around and all this chaos. So everyone was distracted. So everybody was distracted. The pilot and the first officer were both trying to pull the little light out and flip it around. Both attitude director indicators were working. CVR showed that the radio altimeters were working at the time of the crash. And the two autopilot engage switches, which there's two on this one, it's kind of weird. The two autopilot engage switches and the two flight director system select switches were off. 2,000 feet altitude selected with 180 degree heading selection. The vertical speed window said 2,500 feet per minute descent as they hit the ground. That's quick. It's really fast. That means that if they were at 2,000 feet, they would have sunk in less than a minute. Right. I'm just making a frowny face because that's really hard for me to comprehend. But <laughs> Pre-impact malfunction wasn't evident in the hydraulic and electrical systems, and the FDR showed that as well. But a flash fire after the crash from fuel that sprayed occurred that caused 14 passengers to suffer burns. A search was conducted by the Coast Guard, and they found the aircraft the aircraft, after 15 to 20 minutes, completed in, this was completed in four hours, the search and rescue operation. It took them a long time to find the site of the crash because it was so dark. It's so dark. I mean, the Everglades, if you've ever been out there or flown over it at night, I mean, it is pitch black. They couldn't see anything. 68 survivors were airlifted to hospitals. Most survivors were near the cockpit and mid-cabin section that were found at the far end of the wreckage path. Most fatalities were in the center of the crash path toward the back of the plane. The predominant cause of death was getting the chest crushed by the impact. Oh? Yeah. Uh, it's like imagining your breastbone just broken. Y- yep. When I was reading that, I, <laughs> I had to stop for a second. It was very cringy. Yeah, no kidding. Survivors struggled to see when maneuvering around the wreckage because it was so dark and had no flashlights or any light aid at all. Landing in the Everglades also came with some unique obstacles for survivors, which was like fuel in the water, alligators, bacteria in the water. It was pitch black, and this was actually in the middle of winter because it was December. I mean, it's Florida, but still. Um, actually, going to the bacteria in the water, um, for any of the survivors that had open wounds, they got bacteria in their wounds and developed gas gangrene, which... I looked up pictures to maybe put on our website. We are not putting them on our website. If you want to look that up, you go right ahead. It's gory and gross. In order to treat it, these survivors had to be put in hyperbaric chambers where they were filled with oxygen, pressurized oxygen, and that's the only way to defeat the gas gangrene. They took up all of the hyperbaric chambers in the Miami metro area. If they didn't get into a hyperbaric chamber, that limb had to be amputated. Because it's a form of gangrene. That's disgusting. Yes, it is. But they did have another savior. Not mentioned in the NTSB report is Robert or Bob Marcus was nearby and used his airboat to help save survivors. Good for him. Yeah, I know, right? Probably also helped drive away some gators. Yeah, that's the hope. Yeah, it was very notable that the uh, flight crew didn't have any usable flashlights in their positions, so... They were also without flashlights. I mean, you think about it, as a flight crew, it's your job to save the people. As the flight attendants, it's your job to save people and help survivors and help in a crash. But they didn't even have flashlights to use during this crash. I'm assuming that that was changed after this? That was changed. We'll get into the recommendations in a little bit here. Yeah. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So now for the investigatory part of this. Nothing was wrong with the power, the airframe, the electrical system, the pedostatic system, the flight controls, the hydraulic systems, or the electrical systems. All of those are ruled out by the NTSB pretty quick. The first part that they looked at was air traffic control, actually. At Miami International, they had the ARTS-3 system, which was the first 3D radar of its time. ATC wasn't concerned when Flight 401 showed an altitude of 900 feet because he knew that this system could show a wrong altitude for a couple of scans. This is one of those old radars where it does the rotating scan. And he knew that he's, he had seen in the past several erroneous altitudes, and so he wasn't concerned it would clear itself up after a few scans. But didn't he ask the flight crew if they changed their altitude? He did not ask that in as many words. When he noticed that it said 900 feet, he asked, hey, you guys doing okay out there? And all they said was, yeah, we want to try coming back in again. He didn't say anything about their altitude. They didn't say anything about their altitude. It was never brought up. Oh, okay. Okay. The NTSB recognized that this system wasn't intended for terrain clearance. And the FAA at the time didn't require the controller to provide that quote-unquote service. But... During the investigation, everyone agreed it's kind of an unspoken responsibility to warn, for each other to warn of a dangerous situation, even if it's not your job to fix it. At the time, he was also dealing with several other flights. There was um, another flight that was trying to land that also had landing gear problems, and so he was devoting a lot of his focus to that and gave Flight 401 to another air traffic controller before he was then given Flight 401 back. And when that had happened, 401 was already over the swamp, Um, He was focused on a bunch of other flights, and that's when he noticed the 900-foot altitude. We'll get into the recommendations coming from that later. Now, as far as surviving this particular incident, so survivability by the anticipia is determined as if it's a relatively intact environment for the occupants, if the crash forces do not exceed the limits for human tolerance, if there are adequate occupant restraints, and if there's sufficient escape provisions. The main ones addressed in their report were the having an intact environment and having adequate occupant restraints. The people who survived did because they had, upon impact, they had stayed in the plane. The plane where they were remained intact, or if they were launched from the plane, it was at a relatively low velocity. Those who didn't were crushed or were launched from the plane at really high speeds. A lot of the ability to survive this impact was attributed to the seats that were installed by Lockheed. These seats had energy absorbers in the support structure and were bolted to platforms that were then put in tracks in the cabin rather than being directly bolted to the cabin. So when the cabin floor failed, the platforms didn't. And so every row of seats was able to stay together. And so they were able to not undergo as much impact because of that. The only reason that the ones that broke did is because they experienced forces in the aft direction rather than the forward direction. 
the FAA doesn't have a requirement for being able to deal with forces going backward, but rather forward, if that makes sense. Well, that that makes sense because usually if you crash, you crash nose first, not tail first. How would you crash tail first? I mean, if the airplane's spinning, I guess that's one thing, but usually it still goes into wherever it's going nose first. Yeah, so not a lot of these seats failed, but those that did experienced that kind of force. And they weren't treated for it, they weren't made for it, and so that's the only reason that they broke. So now getting into why the plane descended in the first place. The first reason that they looked at was the, quote, subtle incapacitation of the captain. They looked into this specifically because they had found that tumor. And for those of you who don't know anything about psychology or how the brain works, if there is a tumor in your occipital lobe, it has the potential to press on the part of your brain that controls your vision. Yeah, I I knew that. Sometimes when people get cancer, one of the signs that they know they have brain cancer is they stop being able to see or their vision suddenly blacks out and comes back or whatever. So that makes sense. So the NTSB wanted to look to see if this was a factor in the crash. If it had been, maybe he wouldn't have seen the descent indicators when the first officer was working on the lens assembly for the the burned out light. Because the tumor is one is a type that grew so slowly, the captain wouldn't have noticed the impedance of his vision, but medical professor, professionals can't predict with any accuracy the extent of the vision loss because of its size and location. His friends, family, etc. said that he didn't show any signs of being visually disabled in any way, and again, they didn't find any evidence of this in the recent medical exam. It was like a month before the incident. It was really recent. The only thing they did was issue him reading glasses. Yeah, that may have been due to some vision loss, but that could also he just was be also, from age. Yeah, he was like, what, 55? Something like that? Yeah, he was and 55. We all, well, I don't know how old your dad is, but my parents are middle-aged, your parents are middle-aged, so they have to wear reading glasses. Like, my mom can't see unless something is right pressed up against her face. Yeah, both my parents are that way, and they borrow each other's reading glasses. Yeah, so... That makes sense that he would need reading glasses, because that's kind of like about 40s, 50s is when your eyesight tends to deteriorate. Yeah. So. Ultimately, the NTSB ruled it as not a causal factor in the incident. Now for the autopilot system. On the L-1011, the autopilot system was the most advanced of its time. It was the most advanced airplane ever built for commercial aviation, let alone as a wide body. It was rated for a Category 3C landings. That means it could land in absolute zero visibility, which for the 1970s is crazy. I mean, the airplane literally could land itself with no help in zero visibility all the way to the ground. That's crazy. It had multiple functions for the autopilot. It had an A and a B computer. This was pretty advanced for its time. And... Uh, It also had two functions within those. So in either computer, there's either a fully functional autopilot system, or there is what is called CWS, which is control wheel steering. That is where the pilots can basically select a pitch for the airplane by pushing on the control wheel forward or rolling it. And whatever pitch they they select using the wheel is then what the autopilot will hold okay 
please tell me that I'm incorrect here. But did one of them, in messing with the stupid light on the control panel for the landing gear, push on their wheel and caused the crash? What is believed to have happened is when the captain turned around to tell the flight engineer to go into the bay, he bumped his control wheel. You're kidding me. In computer A, which is on the captain's side, it takes 15 pounds of force to disengage the previously selected autopilot system and set it into control wheel steering. It doesn't take a lot. Okay, is that why in current autopilots, if you take over the aircraft, the autopilot disengages? Yes, and it has a very very loud alarm for that. But it also usually completely disengages the auto hold for the altitude in modern autopilots. In this one, it was a dual function auto hold. So it was either fully auto holding altitude, or it was using the pitch given to it by the pilot on the control wheel, and then it held that pitch. Versus in modern in modern autopilots, where when a pilot takes control, first of all, they have a button on the wheel that's supposed to allow them to take control back. Second of all, it gives full control over pitch. It will not hold anything the pilots do. So, because they were so worried about the landing gear, so worried about the stupid light on the control panel, it caused the autopilot to correct and go in a pitch down, right? Yes. And cause the aircraft to go into the Everglades. Yes. In addition to this, so there's an A and a B computer, right? And I just said that it's 15 pounds in A. But for some reason, it was set to 20 pounds in B. So if the bump he had initiated was between 15 pounds and 20 pounds, it didn't hit the 20-pound mark, it would not have showed on the first officer's computer that autopilot was disengaged. So, but... Not that he was paying attention anyway, but... but the first officer, right before they crashed, found out they did something to the altitude. Because the altitude wasn't at 2,000. It didn't show anything about the autopilot. He looked to his altimeter, or his altitude indicator, and it told him that the aircraft was not at 2,000 feet anymore. So... Basically, what should have happened is someone should have been paying attention to their instruments more than worrying about the stupid landing gear. Basically. Crew resource management was non-existent at the time. It was eventually proven from the cockpit voice recorder that they had not looked at their instruments for an entire four minutes before the impact. Wow. There's several things that attributed to that. One was crew resource management. Obviously, captain's word was law. And captain at this point was, he was paying attention to the light. He was directing the first officer to fix the light. And he directed the flight engineer to go below deck. Nobody was paying attention to what was happening. The other thing that attributed to this was the reliance on the autopilot system on the L-1011. After this incident, they held a panel in Miami where they interviewed several other flight crews uh, from Eastern Airlines, as well as flight crews just on the L-1011, there was a pilot that spoke up from Eastern Airlines and said that he did rely on the autopilot system too much. They weren't paying attention to the airplane's attitudes as often as they should have been. And it was known that the airplane would drift a time or two 
and they wouldn't catch it right away. He even admitted to having done so on one flight where the airplane suddenly drifted one direction and lost a little bit of altitude, and it took several minutes before he noticed, but because they were at cruising altitude, it didn't cause them any problems. Initially, Eastern Airlines blamed him as undercutting the airline and was not happy by going directly to the NDSB with this. However, then other flight crews began to back him up and saying, yes, this occurred, and this does occur, and too many pilots are becoming too reliant on the automated systems. There's not enough warnings and indications when things start going wrong in this airplane with too many automated systems. That makes sense, though, because if you're so reliant it's like how people let teslas drive for them nowadays i would never do that because you don't know what's gonna happen and there's there's even been like video games on this like if there was a brick wall or there was a bunch of people walking in a crosswalk and you didn't have any brakes what would the car do would it put you into a wall or would it charge through the pedestrians so right it's You know, new technology is always kind of a scary thing, especially when it automates a machine, a big machine for you. So crew training needed to be a big part of this. They really needed to step up after this panel. It was found that that was a big problem. Actually, 17 days after the accident, Eastern Airlines notified all of their pilots that bumping the control wheel would take it out of autopilot. Otherwise, they had never been trained for it. Yep. Previously, there was no training or even any information given to the pilots that the aircraft would suddenly begin to lose altitude or change pitch and roll because of their movements on the control wheel. So they didn't know that? They didn't know it. Nope. What? I feel like that's a pretty big... Deal? Yeah. Yeah. If you just accidentally, you know, I, I, I can't think of any other reason... But this is a great reason. You turn around to talk to the flight engineer or something, you accidentally press the control column, and suddenly you crash. Like, I feel like that's pertinent information to tell the pilots. Yep. Yeah, it is. But they didn't, and it caused this crash. The NTSB gave quite a few recommendations after this. New regulations for ATC to warn the pilots of low altitude were put in place because Mr. ATC didn't actually call out their altitude or give any indication that he noticed something was wrong. Required installation of a switch for the nose wheel light near the nose gear indicator optical sight was put into the L-1011s. It was recommended anyways. Required installation of a placard which explains use of the system near the optical site, that way the flight engineer could actually figure out how it worked, a requirement that the altitude select alert light system on the EA-configured L-1011s have flashlight warning to the crew whenever the airplane departs the selected altitude by 250 feet, including operations below 2,500 feet radar altitude, since they were below that anyways. So in addition to having the alarm sound from the flight engineer's panel, it would also show up. Show a nice bright light. Also, uh, those of you out there who may understand music theory like we do, probably should not be a C major chord. It should be like a a diminished chord or something, something that jars you. So you're like, what was that? And you can figure it out. I just like remembered that. 
C major chord is a nice, pretty chord. Yeah, it probably shouldn't be something pretty. It should probably be something that's <laughs> jarring. Yeah, right. and it also shouldn't probably come from the flight engineer's position. It I mean, that is his job is to monitor. Yes, but they are also the pilots flying, so they should have the indication when the flight yeah. engineer is not present. NTSB recommended to the FAA to take the necessary steps to ensure that all air carriers before landing and takeoff checklists contained fastened shoulder harnesses and require provisions for the shoulder harness for all cabin flight attendant seats. So this is where they get the little buckle seats? Yes. Oh, okay. Also recommended to the FAA was to require high-intensity flashlights at cabin flight attendant stations so that they might actually have lights when they hit the Everglades. What? concept i know also recommended to the faa was required exit sign brightness and general illumination levels to provide visibility and dense smoke and additional means of activating emergency lighting systems in the cabins so you can see and this is before they put lights on the floor right yeah that's a completely separate incident yep and that's like in the 1980s or something i don't remember yeah it was much later but this is just to illuminate exits? Illuminate exits, illuminate the pathways, so that you could find your way out. There was already a recommendation in process for installation of secondary retention devices on galley equipment, but this was expedited due to this incident because as they were plowing into the mud in the Everglades, some of the pieces of the galley, i.e. microwaves and carts, came loose and began to roll down the aisles and hit people. So I don't know if you've ever noticed when you walk through a galley boarding a plane, but there's a bunch of red switches that hold back all the carts and stuff. That came from this. Right. And it's they're now much, much more secure than they used to be. But Because it impeded survivors getting out of the plane. It was noted that even in a hard landings, the carts and some of the pieces of equipment would actually come loose and just fall on the floor on the L-1011. That's not safe. Not at all. By the way, I found the flight from Durango. And to those of you who want to look into it, it's the Trans-Colorado Airlines Flight 2286, operating as Continental Express Flight 2286. That's when this, and it was a small plane, went down near Durango, and they they couldn't see the ground. So this is when... The terrain alarm became a thing, which I think should have become a thing after this specific flight. Because what year they didn't was know that? It was in 1988. So I feel like it probably should have been a thing before 1988. There's a couple of things that should have happened after EA-401 that didn't, and Nick's about to get into one of them. Four years later, 1977, two 747s in Tenerife... Crashed. Crashed. Together. <laughs> New behavioral science to reduce pilot error was introduced. Crew resource management. That's what what it's called. What a thing was introduced. The captain has to be a leader and communicate with subordinate and be willing to get feedback from them too. So the captain's word is not law anymore. He's willing to take recommendations and actually work with the crew. And the NTSB acknowledged that this should have been implemented after EA-401. EA-401 became a textbook example of bad crew resource management, or CRM. Well, yeah, because everyone was off doing something else except watching the aircraft. And Captain Loft didn't clarify or delegate to anybody other than to do something that he was already a part of. Yeah, because nowadays... 
there's a pilot flying the aircraft. There's a pilot looking at instruments right, so and checklists and all that stuff. Right. It's known as pilot flying and pilot monitoring. Yeah. So that probably won't, wouldn't happen today because there's someone monitor, monitoring the instruments and someone actually flying the aircraft or paying attention to the aircraft while it's flying. Right. Instead, they had four crew members tied to one problem. Crew resource management now also trains flight crews not to be intimidated if one member of the flight crew is in a foul mood. So the cockpit voice recorder showed that the captain was irritated, to say the least, at the whole situation, and it was affecting the other crew members. The first officer was getting flustered as he was trying to replace the lens assembly, and nowadays that won't happen. Now if somebody's mad you don't let that affect you or your ability to fly the plane. That didn't completely help on some cases, though, because there were still crashes that happened because of intimidation. I'm just saying that's how they're trained. Well, it's hard to imagine a world now, though, where those things don't exist. I mean, back then it was just fly by the seat of your pants, kind of, and listen to the captain because he's the experienced know-it-all. And that just wasn't true. While the captain was older in this case, actually in the L-1011, as the L-1011 goes, the first officer technically had more experience. He had 306 hours in the airplane, while the captain only had 288. That said, neither one of those are very much in that airplane because it was brand new. So everybody was learning, but crew resource management not existing at the time. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine that these days with as complicated as it is, but that this airplane being complicated is what forced that learning curve in aviation. Now, to get into a not-so-science-oriented aspect of this crash, after all of the wreckage was recovered, there were parts from this aircraft that were salvageable, and for lack of another word, they were cannibalized and used in other L-1011s at the time. In a lot of the planes that these cannibalized parts were installed in, flight crews reported seeing human-like apparitions of EA-401's flight crew. Okay. That's officially nope. This became a whole thing where crews would report seeing the ghosts of the previous crew trying to save them from dangerous situations, saving from like items being knocked off shelves. They'd see them walking into the cockpit. That said, some crews actually believed that their flights were saved from dangerous situations because of these apparitions. Some flight crews said that they thought somebody came in and told them something was wrong with their airplane and they corrected it. Okay, that's officially a body chills moment. There are several... take a phrase from our favorite podcast. Yeah. Full body chills. There are quite a few books and TV shows actually that have hit on this and it's even in some of the documentaries about this show. It became so much of a problem that Eastern Airlines ended up taking all of those cannibalized parts out of all their other L-1011s. Wow. Making it that big of an issue and having them having to extract the plane parts? Yep. And, like, spend money doing so and having to put in new parts? That's a lot. It takes a lot for an airline to do that, so. Yep. Literally, as we started recording this podcast earlier, we had to start over again. Partially because I messed up, but also because we heard a voice in this room and we are alone. Well, and 
it sounded like it was saying stop. And I looked at Christy and I'm like, what is that? And we had to stop recording because we heard it twice. But And we looked all through the apartment. None of our none of my roommates are here. And nope. the cats were sleeping out here with us. There was no one else here. We went back through the recording and listened to it again. And I mean, it sounds like it's in the room. Yep. So that happened. 35 years after this incident, survivors returned to the site of the crash in the Everglades. And they also took time to commemorate the resources and help of Bob Marcus, the guy in the airboat who helped save so many people. And that was Eastern Airlines Flight 401. Thanks for listening. Hope you learned something and you feel a little bit safer thanks to the modern aviation use of crew resource management and better technology put into the cockpits to help flight crews keep airplanes under control. Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.